0: Well, when you think of the two words, pastor and theologian, what do you think? And you know that before the modern era, these two words used to be synonymous. You'd think the same thing, the same guy, pastor, theologian, same person. They were one and the same. The the pastor functioned like a pastor. He preached the word, visited the sick, counseled and all that. But he also functioned like a theologian. He studied the word at a high level. He was conversant with theology. He didn't know everything, but nothing was way over his head. And it used to be where men entered the pastorate, knowing it was an intellectual endeavor. You were going to have to think. And from this atmosphere came some intellectual giants like Jonathan Edwards, who's regarded as one of the greatest intellectual minds to ever come from America in general as a pastor theologian. But over time, things changed. The role of the pastor as the defender of the faith the guardian of the truth, the master of theology changed. And a specialization took place, which in a sense is not always bad, but you know, theologians, they moved out of the church and into universities. The training of pastors and theologians moved outside the church into seminaries. And so a bifurcation of pastors and theologians took place where they're no longer the same guy. They're, they're separate, like pastors over here, theologians over there. And that's only continuing today. It's quite extreme the separation between the church leader and the, the theologian, the, the person who knows the word and doctrine and, and truth. Today it's extreme. If you're a local church pastor, even if you've written a bunch of books, the theological world won't take you seriously at all. Unless you have a PhD or a PhD, you're, you're, you're worth nothing. You can't contribute. An example is like John MacArthur actually has a. Uh, I think it's an honorary PhD, but he's written what, hundreds of books. But in the world of even Christian academia, it doesn't count. It's like n- nothing he says really counts because he's not a theologian. Person. He's just a pastor. It doesn't count. And on the flip side, you have some of the greatest theologians of our day, but they're not worth their weight in salt pastorally, like actually helping real people with real problems and spiritual growth. They're not pastors. They go to seminary because they don't want to be pastors per se. They still want to learn and minister the the truth, but they're not pastorally minded. There's just separation between the pastor and the theologian or the church leader in general and the one who knows the word and knows doctrine. And so the rift between local church leadership and the knowledge of doctrine is only widened. And So just think, for the pastor today or for the church leader today, what's the job description? How do most people View the job, what's, what's expected. And in many churches, the pastor's job, well, he gives some talks, but he manages programs, he oversees projects, he provides some direction for the church. And many guys are brought in, plain and simple, just to grow the church, just to add numbers, to build the church. But the pastorate is no longer viewed as an intellectual calling. I mean, how much doctrine do you really need to know to build the church, to attract people, to fill the house. There are other ways of doing that. And so like we expect the pastor to know, like, you know a bit more than the people, but he doesn't need to be a theologian. It's not like he needs to be an expert or anything. That's a real problem though. The pastor, teacher, or church leader should never be divorced from the theologian. And church leaders absolutely must possess a strong knowledge of the word of God. It's just part and parcel with their role. And their role is not just a manager of problems or a director of programs, but their, their, their role is ministers of the word for the salvation of the lost, for the sanctification of the saved. And so you can't do that apart from the word of God. And so leaders in the church should be or aspire to be experts, you know, as, as far as you can get an expert in the word of God. And also on top of all this, you know, just given the challenges of our day where the church is being challenged intellectually and morally, strong leadership is required. And I would say strong intellectual leadership is required where men of God can provide some credibility to the claims of the church, which come from scripture to defend the faith, right? But most pastors and church leaders, they're not equipped to provide such leadership. Seems like they don't even have a lot of these answers, they're they're just spiritual cheerleaders. They can't biblically answer the tough questions themselves, and so it's no wonder that their churches are floundering when confronted with a lot of these issues that you know call on a response and at times an intellectual response. Not I don't know about you, but I find it a bit discouraging when you hear a pastor say, like, well, I don't need to know theology. It's not my job to be a theologian, coming from a pastor. And churches have outsourced theological know-how to the seminaries. Like that's where the experts live. They do their thing over there. And and the, the pastor's like a broker. He's a middleman between the theologians and the, the experts and the, the common people. he has to know just enough to, to you know, feed them a little bit of the, the higher level stuff, but he doesn't have to know it all that well himself. He's just kind of a middleman. That's bad news for local churches. And it's so bad today where there's more and more pastors you hear of where they themselves have bypassed seminary altogether, for example. And what does that tell you? I mean, just think about that for a second. What does it tell you when you hear of a a pastor, you know, maybe the main pastor of a church, the preacher, and he bypassed seminary? And look, you don't nowhere in the Bible does it say you must go to seminary to be a pastor. Seminaries came about because of that specialization. And in a sense, we're obviously not opposed to them. They can be a great thing never meant to be divorced from the local church, but when wedded to the local church, when done in partnership with a local church, seminaries can provide specialization and really intensive training for pastors and, and that knowledge. So they, they can be a good and useful thing, of course, when done in partnership with the church. And especially in today's day and age, we're just, hey, it is what is. American church culture, we're not effectively training pastors in local churches, we, we do outsource to seminaries for that intensive training. Although, like I said, it really needs to be a both and, not an either or. The church and the seminary needs to train the next generation. But anyway, what does it tell you today when you've got a guy who wants to be a pastor or church leader, but has no interest in seminary or just even studying on his own, just no interest in it? I mean, what does he think he's getting into? What job description did he read where he thought, That would be a good idea. You know, motivational speaker, mover and shaker, administrator, organizer of people, community outreach guy, kids program leader. I mean, I guess you don't need seminary for any of that. So if that's all he's signing up for, I guess it could be okay. But I mean, you don't need seminary to be an engaging, you know, funny and popular speaker. But when you go back to, as we've been studying in this biblical leadership series, that the biblical picture of the leader in the church and the mission of leadership and how vital the ministry of the word is to that mission of making disciples and building up the church, you would, it would be almost unthinkable to go into that untrained. And if there's access to a higher level training today, as there is in seminaries <laughs> Why wouldn't you jump at the opportunity like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to partake in the mission of the church, which the ministry of the word is essential to that mission. Here's a place I can go for intensive training in addition to my local church. Well, I'm going to do that. Would you really want to visit a doctor who didn't go to medical school or a lawyer who didn't go to law school? And in today's day and age, what about a pastor who doesn't go to pastor school? I've known a few who were truly self-equipped, and they were a cut above, and a guy you know, taught himself Greek and Hebrew just by himself. He knew more theology than any of you or me. Church history, he just read and read and read. He was, you know, he, seminary was kind of pointless for him. He did it by himself, and praise God. So it's not like, like I said, you have to go to seminary. He actually was a lawyer who became a pastor. Um, i tell you the type of guy he was. But in general, you know, it's just, well, I'm going to go there and get that training. Anyway, this divide, though, between church leadership and just doctrine, knowledge of doctrine, knowledge of the word, that, that rift, that's not to the benefit of the local church, but it's to the detriment and even the downfall. When those in leadership, they can't teach the faith, they can't communicate the faith, they can't defend the faith, you're only going to find way more confusion among the flock under them. And it's just going to spell a lot of bad news for... The church. Now I probably don't need to harp on this point any further by way of introduction, but I'll give you one example that I know a lot of you know, may remember, but you've heard this before. But it just it sticks out as like the primary example of this very problem I'm talking about is back in 2005, where popular preacher Joel Osteen gave an interview on Larry King Live. Who remembers? You know, you guys remember this interview? He's pastor of the largest church in America. And that's, so that's quite a position of leadership. The largest church in America already has a huge platform. Then he's given a, this platform on Larry King Live. That's a national audience. What an opportunity. What a golden opportunity to preach the gospel, represent Christ, and at least witness to millions of people that might be watching. And in the interview, Larry King was just, he was like pitching softballs to Joel Osteen. It's easy questions. And he was talking about think, salvation. How do you get to heaven? Who goes to heaven? And he just wanted to know, like, from his perspective, wasn't even antagonistic. These were softballs. And I'll read you a little bit of the transcript from the interview. And the king is just asking about, you know, who goes to heaven? And so king says, you know, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? And Osteen responds, he says, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. And at this, King, he was surprised by Osteen's answer. And he, so he gave him a chance, a follow-up chance, just to like explain himself in case he got caught off guard. But in the following, you see Osteen just denies that Christ is the only way of salvation by, his, by what he fails to say. So King follows up and says, if you believe, you have to believe in Christ. They're wrong, aren't they? Speaking of Muslims and, uh, and Jews. By the way, Larry King is himself, I believe, Jewish. Right? So maybe he was, you know, felt pressured. But anyway, so he says, if, if you believe that people have to believe in Christ, then Jews and Muslims, they're wrong. They have to be wrong, right? Well, Osteen says, quote, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion but I know they love God, and I don't know, I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know, I know for me, and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, end quote. Doesn't get a whole lot better after that, and it just makes you think, like, what kind of an answer is that? And I'm not trying to be divisive here, or always, like, pick at people, or, you know, have fighting in the home team, so to speak, but listen, you know, we can disagree on minor issues, but not the redemptive work of Christ. That should be no-brainer, easy questions, easy answers for any church leader, if not the leader of the largest church in America. Should there be any question here, any doubt? Should be nothing but a clear, consistent message coming from church leaders on this, right? But five times in his answer, he said, I don't know. So what does he know? And he even Praises the pagan false religion of Hinduism, saying that they were sincere in their love of God. So, we, what does he know what the Bible says? Like, what, what qualifies him as a pastor? And why should people follow someone who doesn't know that much? But if, if, if you view pastor as a motivational speaker, then, you know, what does any of that really matter after all? So, anyway, I'm telling you all this just the loss of truth and doctrine. And theology among church leaders. It's going to spell the demise of the church in America. And I think you probably all agreed. It already kind of has. It's already going that way. And we're seeing that just more and more in local churches. And for us at least. Well I want to make sure that you know. And that you're convinced. That the knowledge of God's word. And and doctrine even. Must never be divorced from church leadership. And I'm not even just talking about pastors and elders. But even down to the, the small group leader. You don't have to know everything, but it's part of your job to know, part of your role to know a thing or two about doctrine, but the Word of God. Leaders must be men and women of the book who study it, you know it, you chew on it, you digest it, and then you you spit it back out to feed others. I like how a bird feeds. That's kind of gross, but that's how we feed others the Word. You know, you, you take it in, digest it yourself, And then you just, you give that on and pass it on to others and feed them. But the leader who is himself just starving to death for lack of the word, he's only going to produce anemic, starving, and weak sheep. And that just runs totally counter to the mission of the church and uh, the work, everything we've been studying in this biblical leadership series. So without much further ado, we want to study now tonight the doctrine of, Of biblical leadership. This is technically, I think, now our lesson nine in this series, and this will be the doctrine of biblical leadership. And after setting the character and the qualities, I wanted this to be a little compendium. You'll see how they fit together as we go on. But another essential mark of the biblical leader, our point of preparation, the doctrine of biblical leadership. And just to start briefly defining doctrine, someone want to help, just basic, real simple, how would you define the word doctrine? Yeah, there you go. Simple enough. You know, doctrine doesn't have to be complicated or or scary. It's just really what the Bible says about any given topic, any given subject. You put all that teaching together and you have formed a doctrine. Everything the Bible says about the deity of Christ, well, you put all that together and you, you formulate the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So it's, it's simple enough. And so I'm going to be using the term doctrine quite a bit tonight. But what is that really but just a, a knowledge of the Bible? To know doctrine just means you know the Bible. And you know what it says in part and in whole and given topics and subtopics. You just have a knowledge of the word in various areas. That's all we really mean by that. And so when we, we're talking about the doctrine of biblical leadership, really just talking about the handle on the word of God that the leader has. You've got to have a a good handle on it and all it says. But more specifically, though, we'll try and ask and answer three questions tonight to learn about the doctrine of biblical leadership. First, why does the biblical leader need to know doctrine? Why does the biblical leader need to know doctrine? And look, I, I know I kind of already gave a lot of this away in the introduction, but still, I'll ask that question to you. If you can help me out, just think about maybe some some of the things we didn't mention, but what are some reasons you can come up with in your mind as to why, even specifically, the biblical leader must know doctrine. Think about the role of the church leader. Why is it essential for that person to know the word? Just flesh it out with me a little bit. Okay, yeah. Great. So first and foremost, just right off the bat, the role of being a teacher can't teach what you don't know. So plain and simple to be able to teach, you have to know. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So you might say uh, an apologetics angle where you have to know doctrine and there is a role for all Christians, but especially leaders, to make a defense of the faith, to refute those who contradict and to, you know, give answers. So absolutely. Yeah. Lloyd and then uh, Joey and then Richard. Okay, good. Just for himself, to know himself, to know the truth. That's his own qualification. Yeah, very good. Joey? Yeah, the function of leadership we learned a little while ago includes decision-making that requires a lot of biblical wisdom. And that the key word there is biblical wisdom. You need to know the Bible and God's precepts and teachings to make wise biblical decisions. So yeah, leadership in general. One more. Richard, you want to chime in? Okay, yeah, there you go. Another fundamental is just knowing the gospel, That, that the role of making disciples. If you don't know the word... The doctrine of salvation, how can you, how can you make disciples? You, you can't. So yeah, all good answers. So to keep it kind of simple, I'm going to give you the two, two primary answers. Why must the biblical leader know doctrine? And they're, they're big enough to cover all that you guys said. The first, the biblical leader must know doctrine to feed the sheep. And all that entails to feed the sheep. And the sheep are notoriously bad at finding food. They have great difficulty finding green pasture by themselves, finding streams of water by themselves. You could have a flock and there could be green pastures a mile away or a little stream just over that hill and on their own that they might never find it. So if you're going to sustain a large flock of sheep, you're going to have to feed them. any sheep flock or any flock of size, you're going to have to do the work to feed them, to lead them to water and to food for them to thrive. And the same is really true spiritually with the flock of God. God has given the church, pastors, teachers, and leaders to help feed the people the word of God so that by it, they may grow. Like Christ said in Matthew 4, 4, you know, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the the, uh, the mouth of God. We are feeding on spiritual food here and leaders need to be cooks and chefs and prepare that food, serve that food, feed the people. This word from the mouth of God, this divine bread, so to speak. It's our sustenance and leaders' help in that work of feeding. In addition, you know, turn over John 21 real quick. We'll look at a few passages as we go in our little Bible study here. With John 21, it's after the resurrection. Jesus appearing to the disciples and talking to Peter. I'll read and ask a few questions. John 21, 15 through 17. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So real quick here. What's the context in this discussion between Jesus and Peter? What happened before? Okay, betrayal. Peter blew it, denied Christ. This is Jesus doing what? What's Christ's goal here in asking these questions? What's he trying to do with Peter? Trying to restore him and prepare him for a life of ministry. He will be the leader of the church. So this is Christ's restoration, preparation. And so he asks these three questions, and then he tells him in response, after Peter affirms his love for the Lord, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. So these three commands, what does that tell you about Christ's own view of the ministry and church leadership for which he's preparing Peter? That's kind of a lot to do with feeding the sheep. And the word for tend in verse 15 and 17, that word means to feed the sheep, to watch over them as they're grazing. So it has a nuance of feeding the sheep. And so we, act, we look at this passage mostly for seeing oh, you know, how, how Jesus restored Peter, and that's true. But you also glean from this, we actually get a glimpse into how Christ himself viewed the, the, the work of leadership and ministry that he was going to entrust to Peter. It had a lot to do with feeding the sheep, shepherding the sheep. That, that's like a primary duty Peter needed to be ready for. Not, not fishing anymore, just get over the fishing, time to be a shepherd. And that involves feeding these people. This is why elders are called to be able to teach, required to teach the word, 1 Timothy 3.2. And that's why they're outright told to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. And the greatest failure of Israel's shepherds in the Old Testament was their failure to do this, their failure to feed the flock. Remember, recall Ezekiel 34, 1 through 3, were. God, through the prophet, rebuked them. He said, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. They were fleecing the flock and living large off of them without feeding them the word of God. And so like we're making a very simple point here that well, what's the mission of biblical leadership? What are we trying to do in leadership? As we've studied in church leadership, the mission is to make disciples and then to help people grow. To see them conform with the image of Christ. To grow in their Christ likeness. And that's a supernatural work. That's a spiritual work, not a natural work. For that work, the word of God is essential. Agree? It's essential. Okay, so therefore, if that's how God is going to grow people through his word, it should go without saying that leaders must be, in their very core, ministers of that word. And because of that, they've got to know it. You have to know it. Like Marie was saying, you can't teach people what you don't know. If you're starving, you can't feed others. And so it's a simple point, but it's worth repeating that you know, biblical leaders, it's just in their, the essence of their role and their identity, they have to know doctrine if they're going to feed others. That's what they're feeding. Again, doctrine is just what the Bible says about everything. And so they need to know that and just really well that they can feed others. And if they fail in this duty, well, the sheep under them are going to be weak and often sickly and prone getting lost. And this leads to the second reason why leaders must know the word, must know doctrine. The biblical leader must know doctrine to feed the sheep and secondly to protect the sheep. To protect the sheep. And sheep are also notoriously vulnerable and defenseless. They can easily get themselves into trouble in uh, Aksem Turkey, not too long ago, was reported, one sheep wandered off of a cliff and fell to its death, and the others started to follow it. And over time, 1,500 sheep went off the cliff. Only 450 died, though. So this is a true story, but the first 450 fell and formed like a fluffy cushion, and the rest kind of bounced off of them and survived. But it's still not good odds. It's one in three. You're not making it over that cliff. It's bad news for the sheep. So sheep just get themselves in the trouble. And they're also easy prey. When you think about it, God gave them essentially no natural defense. Right? No speed, no claws, no teeth. They're white. Like the opposite of camouflage. Like you can just pick them out in a green field. They have, they've got nothing. They can be taken down by an animal half their size. And I guess their only defense is statistics, meaning there's just a lot of them. So chances are you'll survive. Like if that guy gets eaten, you survived. That's not good news for the sheep, though, just playing the statistics game. And so anyway, without question, if you're going to have a flock of any size and if it's going to survive, they must be guarded. They need a shepherd and the shepherd must guard them, protect them, keep them together. And again, the same goes for the church, the flock of God. It needs protection. The Bible has so much to say about spiritual leaders guarding and protecting the people of God. So much to say about the prevalence of false teachers at all times. False teaching always around. And the need for leaders to make a defense, to answer questions, to guard uh, the flock. In the Old Testament, Israel's leaders were called to be watchmen. Another way they failed and they were rebuked for. They were not watching over the people, keeping them free from idolatry and error. And not much changes in the New Testament. With the elders, pastors, and church leaders, they are to be spiritual guards of the flock. I want you to turn now to Acts 20, 28-31, through 31, Acts 20. Acts twenty, twenty eight through thirty-one, I'll just read that. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Beyond the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. You know the context here. Paul is ministering to the Ephesian elders. He had been with the Ephesian church for quite some time as their leader, but it's time for him to move on. So this is his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He's going to be leaving them on their own, and I mean you can see it's pretty clear what his main concern is for them to guard the flock. They're now overseers. God has made them overseers. Part of that oversight includes a spiritual protection because a couple of threats are going to arise. How does Paul know that they're going to arise? They arise in every church. And as long as sin is still around and before Christ comes, it's just how it's going to be. And so he says there will be from without and from within of the danger of false teachers in the church like wolves who will tear the church apart. This church has been purchased by Christ. And look, it's not going to be lost by Christ. Christ is not going to lose his own. But also we know that God uses means. Christ will use means to protect the sheep. And these overseers are those means. And so Paul admonishes them to be on the alert, be on guard, watch out. And you've got to watch over the sheep. And you know, he's talking here, not, not physically per se, but you know, spiritually, doctrinally. They've got, to, they've got to know truth from error to watch out for the error that will come in and ravage the flock. The false teaching that will come to lead people astray, as he says. And so therefore, they, these leaders must know the truth that Paul admonished them for three years. They themselves, they've got to know the truth to discern truth from error, to refute those who contradict. You find the same teaching really in a sense over in John 10. So you can flip back over to John chapter 10, hear from Christ himself again. You see the the shepherd analogy popping up over and over again for church leadership. As we've seen, it's very common and and really the, the key analogy for church leadership. John 10, what Christ teaches in verses 11 through 15, resonates here. Christ says, I am the good shepherd, verse 10, or 11. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who's not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and, not, and he's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, the false shepherd flees at the first sign of danger, but the true shepherd is one who will lay down his life for the sheep. And we don't own the flock, it belongs to the Lord, but for those in church leadership, we're his under shepherds. And so He has made us overseers to watch over his flock and on our master's behalf. We're going to show the same care and concern for the flock. Even if it comes to it, laying down our life for the flock. Many have done so, even physically in the past. But in general, though, in essence, that the primary type of protection we're talking about here for church leaders is, is spiritual. It's doctrinal. It's truth from error. Like Christ said over in Matthew seven fifteen of false teachers. You know, you'll know them by their fruits. And to be on guard, be aware of them and their ways and their teaching and their falsehoods. Because we know it's primarily a truth war we're fighting here in the church, in the culture. And so the leaders must be the ones who help lead and guard the church from error. We're protecting against false teaching and that poses an eternal threat to the souls of the sheep. And so if this is the role, if this is the mission, if this is part of church leadership... Again, we're now making a second, still simple point that the biblical leader must know the truth to guard the truth. If you don't know doctrine, how can you identify false doctrine? If you don't know the word of God really well, how can you tell when that person in that Bible study starts you know, spouting off some teaching? You know, it kind of sounds wrong, but you don't really know. Like, How can you put a stop to that? Maybe he's teaching outright heresy. If you don't know better, What's to stop that person from really carrying people away? It's happened before. And so the simple point is that the leader must know doctrine to guard the truth and uh, and reject error. There's always false doctrine swirling around the church. And if leaders don't know doctrine to identify it and refute it, can you really expect others to? This is how false doctrine gets a foothold in churches and spreads. Because the leaders failed to do their duty of protecting the sheep and refuting error. In fact, this is an explicit duty of church leaders. Just one more. Turn back to Titus 1. If you hear weeks ago, we were in Titus 1 setting the character of leadership. Remember that? Go to the same passage in Titus 1. And I stopped us in that passage short of a couple verses or really one verse. And I was saving it for this lesson on purpose. Because if you remember in Titus 1, Paul is giving some qualifications for elders or church leaders. And so there are two family qualifications, if you remember. You know, one, one wife man, husband of one wife, having children who believe. So he gives a couple of family qualifications. And then he gives 11 character qualifications. We studied that list, talking about the character of the leader, right? And he also gives at the end some doctrinal qualifications. We didn't talk about those, but saved it for right now. Titus 1.9. So remember the passage, you know, verse seven, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Remember all that? But in the same breath, verse nine, He says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And there it is, one verse, you have it. To feed and to guard. This is why the church leader must know doctrine. He must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. What's the teaching? That's the word. That's the the teaching of the apostles that we have now in scripture. You've got to know it, know it really well, hold fast to it so that he can use it to teach, to exhort, to feed people. That's the positive side. And then to also to guard, to refute those who contradict that is a requirement for the elder, by the way, to be able to identify false teaching and say, chapter, verse, this is why that's wrong. And I can refute those who contradict. You don't have to give a, you know, a an amazing speech or write a book, but it has to know enough to say here, chapter, verse, this is error. And to refute those who contradict. And so look, there, I guess you could say there's a potential problem when you have a spiritual leader who knows too much doctrine. The one who knows too much has a potential problem of spiritual pride. As we know, knowledge puffs up. So he's got to guard against that, of course. The danger of pride and self-reliance when you know too much. And so the answer there is humility. But I would say, you know, the opposite case is far more damaging and dangerous for the church when you have spiritual leaders who know too little, don't know anything. They don't know Doctrine. They don't know their Bibles. That's how false teaching has entered the church. When you think of all the false teaching alive today, it all started somewhere, right? And in a sense, you could imagine how all that false teaching could have been stopped if you had that one local church where it all started with leaders who knew a thing or two would just put a stop to it, so to speak. Anyway, I think we could go on about this question of why the biblical leader must know doctrine. But it just boils down to the mission of biblical leadership. If, if the mission of the, of the church and of leadership is just to entertain people, then you don't need no doctrine. You can get by just fine without it. But if the mission is to make disciples, to preach Christ, to present every person complete in Christ, well, you have no hope of accomplishing that mission without the Bible, without doctrine. You need to know. So that's the first question. The other two are are shorter. Second question, how does the biblical leader get to know doctrine? So the first, you know, why must he know doctrine? Secondly, how does the biblical leader get to know doctrine? And I know in many ways, it's kind of an obvious question, but I wanted to still include it to offer some practical instruction on how you get to know doctrine. Maybe you're an aspiring leader in the church or just a discipler and you want to grow in your knowledge of the word of God. So, you know, practically speaking now, like, how do you do that? And unfortunately, you cannot learn the Bible through osmosis. So you can't just put the Bible under your pillow when you go to bed at night and hope it just kind of transmits in there and gets through. It doesn't work that way. There's really just one tried and true way to know the Bible and study It's not a surprising answer, I hope. Just study. If God wanted, when he saved someone, or even when he called someone to be a pastor, for example, if he wanted, he could have just given that person an immediate, instant download of all the truth. So he now just, you know everything about the Bible now. We can imagine if he wanted to, he could do that, but he doesn't. Although he does give spiritual gifting, God uses means, and as he calls people into ministry, He does so often through their own diligent study of the word. You just have to study. There's no substitute for study. The the classic example of this in scripture is Ezra 7.10. Ezra the scribe, the spiritual leader for Israel after their exile and their return. And he led the people through a revival and return. But his leadership was not apart from study. Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in all Israel. Notice the order. He set his heart to study the word, then to practice it, then to teach it. That's the right order, by the way. You got the order right. You study first. You get to know what it says. Then you practice it. We've studied that right in biblical leadership. You got to practice what you preach first. You study it, you practice it, then you teach. Then you can lead effectively. But it starts with study. You can't get around that step. You have to study, know what it says. Remember in leadership, it's not our own authority here. Biblical leaders do have authority. Hebrews 13, 17 or 7 calls on the church to submit to their leaders. There is a spiritual authority there, but it's a derived authority. I, I have no inherent authority comes from Christ on the basis of his word. You only listen to me as far as I can say chapter and a verse. You know, if I can communicate the authority of the word, that's, that's where our authority comes from. And so, again, for this, you've got to know the word to wield the biblical authority and guidance. Interesting verse, you know, 2 Timothy 4.13. Paul in prison writing to Timothy near the end of his life. And he calls on Timothy to visit him because he's all alone. So he says, in 2 Timothy 4.13, When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Would that be some of your final requests? You're in jail, you're in prison, you're on death row. You know you're, you're probably going to die. But what does Paul want? He wants his cloak in the ancient world, that was uh, your key article of clothing and a warmth. So in a dungeon, that makes sense. Then he wants his books. He wants his parchments. These are probably his and other early writings of the church. He wants the parchments that he can study, that he can know, that he can read, that he can meditate. And maybe he thought even keep writing, although 2 Timothy would prove to be his last. Uh, but that, that's a sign of a leader. He's, even in prison, he wasn't done wanting to know and study and behold the word. You know, if you're not interested in Bible study and reading, church leadership probably isn't for you. And you know, that's okay too, in a sense, right? We know not all people are the same, wired the same, called the same. We've said many times, biblical leadership, it's not quite for everyone. We're all called to study the Bible. So you don't get off that hook. You still all must study the Bible. That's just inherent with reading and knowing the word. But the biblical leader, you need to have a real appetite for it and enjoy it. Otherwise, it's just a drudgery, and that goes against leadership as well. You really have to desire it, enjoy it, have an appetite for it, where, dare I say, it's even fun for you. (laughs) Let's not get that crazy, right? No. You know, along these lines, we would add self-discipline as a feature of the biblical leader here. If you're going to grow in your knowledge of the word, you've got to study and that requires diligence and discipline over just yourself. Like I'm going it's time, I'm gonna sit down, buckle up, and just it's time to study the Bible here. No distractions, like this just just gotta do it. First Timothy four, seven and eight. Paul tells Timothy earlier, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This goes for character and this goes for knowledge. You want to grow in godliness? God God grows. He uses means. His means is your diligence. You've got to exert spiritual sweat. He's going to work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, but you've got to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So discipline yourself. And that that would go for all of us. So I think for most of us, this is an area of growth. You might might have a few who uh, maybe they're they're too diligent. They need to slow down and you know, hey, go spend time with your family, or just go sleep, or do something like that. But I think for for most of us, it's really where, where do you need to grow? Probably in the area of just diligence, discipline. I need to commit more of myself to this task if I'm really to grow. A time to sit down and really crack open the Bible and read and and study. Not just read, but I'm going to study the word. The process never ends for the biblical leader. You have to embrace that too. Because it's not like you get to a point and you're like, oh, I'm done now. I finished. I studied. I learned and I'm all done. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen here. Knowing the Bible is never ending. It's like drinking from the ocean. If it were fresh water. It just keeps going. And that's okay. You just be faithful and diligent in the process. That's all that's being called on here and and God will grow you and you will grow in your knowledge. I remember being in seminary, you're thinking like, okay, two years left, one year to go, finish. You know, got an MDiv, great. Decided to stick around for a THM. And so that's a two-year thing. Okay, got two years left, one year left. So that's in total, you know, five years of seminary. I'm like, finished, great. Finally, you know, Finished all that study. No more study, right? Entered full-time ministry. Finally, that was my heart's desire. I'm in full-time ministry. This is great. And what do you know? It's like, study, more study, never-ending study. You know, that's okay. That's a good thing. You've got to embrace that. You've got to enjoy that. That's not all there is. Because again, we're in the people business. This is ministry. It's a means to an end. We know that. But you still can't get around that first step. Study the law of the Lord. Practice it, then teach it. You can't skip step one. You have to understand that and step up to that. Along these lines, I can add just a few practical tips on studying the Bible, studying doctrine. And these might be paltry to you, but I'll still throw them in here. Some practical tips on studying the Bible. It's common wisdom, right? Find the best place. You guys know that. But when you have a choice, you're going to want to pick an environment that's most conducive to study for you. And that's it's subjective, but whatever works for you. Alone, isolated, in a Starbucks, in a crowd, whatever works for you, create a, a study nest or a study closet, just a place where you can effectively study, uh, free from distractions. For me, here in the church office, noise doesn't bug me. So all the construction and the bathroom work, no big deal. Smell does bug me. So when they laid the epoxy floors, like, I'm out of here. That day I had to go. It was just a little too much. Anyway, just find the best place environment for you that's conducive to real study, free from distractions. Along those lines, find the best time. This is common sense, right? But Ephesians 5.16 says, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Just redeem the time. Not all times of the day are created equal for study. So part of discipline is managing your schedule. Saying no to certain things to, to create time for study. Whether it's morning or evening, that's up to you. Just prioritize the time. If you're a morning person or an evening person, I was always and still am a night owl. So, you know, back in seminary, I don't do this anymore, thankfully, but back in seminary, it's that second wind, that 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. They get that second wind, and I'm off to the races. I always got my second wind. But morning, though, I'm dead. Just forget it. Just. I'm a not a morning person. Anyway, you got to prioritize your time. If you don't run your time, your time will run away. Guys, I made that up. Isn't that that's amazing? Like I was so proud of that. I'm sure someone said that before. I was writing my notes. I'm like, that's that's pretty good. I just gotta write that down. So I got one. Finally, if you don't run your time, your time will run away. I'm sure someone said that before, but I was just proud of that. Anyway, you know John Wesley. He would ride horseback 50 to 90 miles a day as an itinerant preacher. Horseback, 50 to 90 miles a day, and on horseback he'd be reading and studying. Have all of his books, his little knapsack, and he'd be reading and studying on horseback. That's redeeming the time. That's study. You know, back again another little anecdote back in seminary. So we'd have you know game nights with my sister or just friends, and these were like long strategy games where one person's turn might take several minutes. You're just kind of waiting. And so I'll just kind of flip under the table my Greek flashcards. and memorizing, memorizing, you know, Greek vocab. Just finding little ways. Redeem the time. It's just, you know, find that down time. And anyway, this goes into study. Find the best place. Find the best time. Make time. You've got to control your time. And then lastly, find the best resources. Find the best resources. And of course, first and foremost, you're studying the Bible here. That is your textbook. That's all you really need, the Word of God. So you study that, you read that, you don't substitute that. But it's not wrong to supplement that with other resources that enhance your study and knowledge of the Word. And so find the best resources and invest in them. Read scripture and in addition, good Christian books from history, from present day, You might include in your little library some systematic theologies. Those are just helpful in synthesizing doctrine in all areas. You can include some commentaries. Those are useful for setting a a given book or a given passage. You have books called lexicons. That's for studying words. You're going to do an actual little passage now, and you want to know these words, what they mean in the original. It's like a, a lexicon, we would call that. Bible dictionaries are great for understanding manners and customs like life. Two thousand years ago, and then monographs, that, that's what we call just a book with one topic. Just you know most of the books on your shelf are monographs, just you know just devotional or, or more serious books. You find the good ones and you, you read them. And discriminate. It's better to read one good book a month than just three or four whatever books. Just read something worth reading and then read it. And read critically. Have a, a notebook, have a pen, write questions, write notes. If you see a word you don't know, look it up. It's fast today, like dictionary.com, get an app. You can do it real fast, but it's okay to still learn. You guys are all out of school, I think, but it's, it's okay to still be learning. You should be. We all are. And so just you have to embrace, in a sense, a student life for life. Because are we not all students of the word as Christians now for the rest of our lives? So you, you've never left school. You're still in school. And us uh, have some steady time. And God will bless that. Now just to finish kind of along these lines. We'll, we'll briefly address one last question here. You know, What doctrine must the biblical leader know? We've asked why the leader must know doctrine. How to get to know doctrine. Last, and this is another little practical question. But what doctrine must the biblical leader know? One simple answer is more than your sheep. Right? At the very least, know more than your sheep. And that's actually, there's a lot of truth to that, which is why I always find that children's ministry and youth ministry, they're great first stops for the young teacher. You have a young person who you know, maybe still, may still be growing in their knowledge and handling God's word, but they still know like way more than little kids or junior hires or high schoolers. So that's just a great first stop. Because like, you'll never know everything. And so if that's your requirement for being a teacher or a leader, we're all disqualified. But it's just a great first stop, jump in children's ministry. You're presenting just bite-sized truths to their minds anyway. And, and as you're growing in your knowledge. And even still, it's never wrong to say as a leader, like, you know, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. Or to bump a question up the chain. That's, that's not wrong to do while you're growing in your knowledge of the word. But as time goes on, I mean, obviously we would imagine that the biblical leader should have a solid handle on all of the essential doctrines of the faith. So for example, you could take something like our doctrinal statement here at the church and go through that, which which captures, we would say, the essential truths, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And you should be able to read that. Your first step, you can read that thing and you're, you're conversant with it. You know the terms, you know what they mean. You're not blindsided. Nothing's going like way over your head. You've got a basic handle on it just by reading it. That's like a good first step. Get to that level. Read it. Study the word. Look up all the verses and just kind of get to know at a basic level. And then your next step is to really internalize it where you're no longer merely regurgitating truth, but you get it. If you know what I mean by that, just you get it. It clicks. It just makes perfect sense in your mind. You've internalized the truth. That's when you're ready to be a teacher. By the way, you can really communicate truth because it's just, it's in you. You know it, and so let that you know start with, for example, a doctrinal statement or a, uh, some summary of the essential truths of the faith. That's just a good place to begin with. You know what to know. In addition to theology, I would add that over time, the leader should know church history, apologetics, and biblical counseling. If you're going to expand your horizons, those are good places to go. Church history, apologetics, biblical counseling. These are other fields in Christianity that I would highly recommend for the leader to get acquainted with. And since I said I was trying to be a little more practical today, if you want a, a real practical takeaway, to if you're out there saying, you know, I want to grow in my knowledge of the word, knowledge of doctrine, this is probably the most accessible book I can recommend. I got this very early when I was a Christian. It's called Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Some of you might remember, we've talked about before about R.C. Sproul. And uh, let's see, I, I write, every time I read a book, I write the date. So 2004 was when I first read this. So I was a Christian just, you know, two or three years at the point. But it's just a great little book. It's It's got 102 chapters. But look, every chapter is only three pages. It makes you feel real good. Like, I just read a chapter. Like, you feel really accomplished. You can, like, do three chapters a night and feel good about yourself. They're really bite-sized. It's truly covering the essentials of the Christian faith. So it's kind of like a bite-sized systematic theology. And look, with R.C. Sproul, we love him. There's a couple chapters we might have slight differences here with some of his covenantalism and whatnot. But that wouldn't stop me from highly recommending this as just a great entry-level resource to like get to know essential truths of the Christian faith. It did a great job. I'll leave this here later if you want to look at it. But stuff like that. I mean, just, well, study. Find resources to supplement the Bible and to help you know the Bible more. Again, that's our textbook. And uh, get to know the essential truths of the Christian faith. We'll kind of leave it there. All this takes time. And the call here is just be faithful. Just be diligent in the process. You're not going to know everything tomorrow or even in a year. It takes time. Again, like I said before, just embrace that and dive in. Start somewhere and God will grow you. And that's really the the benefit that comes, one of the richest benefits. You might think as a leader, like, okay, I'm studying so that I can lead others, that I can feed others, that I can guard others. Like what some one of you said before, there this great benefit where you you're also feeding yourself and you're guarding yourself. You're 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 building up yourself in your own study of the word. And that personally I know, and I know Oliver can attest as well, is one of the greatest benefits of being a pastor where, hey, we'll prepare a sermon to to teach you all, but we get way more out of it than you guys, because we're we're studying a lot longer. And that's just, hey, that's a one of a great hidden blessings of being a leader or a teacher you're going to be blessed as you study the word even more. God always blesses the study of his word. So just dive in. Don't forsake the study of his word and doctrine and see yourself built up. And for those of you who lead, you'll see your others under you built up as well. This is the doctrine of biblical leadership. All right, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. It's a lamp to our feet. It guides us. It reveals all we need to know about who you are, what you've done. It's truth. It's just simply truth. And we want the truth. We need the truth. We need it to feed us, to enrich us. by, By the truth, you grow us. We need to long for the milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation. And we need to know it to be free from error, that we're not caught off guard, or led astray. I mean, your word is just so essential in our own lives and in in the church and ministry. And so I pray we just take to heart the necessity for all of us, whether people here are our leaders or not, the necessity for every Christian to know your word, to study it, to practice it. It's, It's vital to our lives. Christ prayed, Lord, he said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And so may we take it to heart in all leave with a, a little stronger conviction to study your word and get to know the doc, uh, your doctrine, what your word says. We live in a culture, even a Christian culture, where that is more and more being forsaken. Uh, but all we can say is, is, for us, may it never be. May we be a, a church, especially as a, a Berean Bible church, built on your word, uh, that s- stays close to your word, that never forsakes it, and really just dives in. So bless us in that, Lord. We know you will as studying your word is always time well spent. And so uh, bless us in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.